scripture readings this morning are from, the first is from Isaiah, chapter 6, 1 through 8. It's on page 680 in the Bible in front of you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. When he touched my mouth and said, with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The second reading is from John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. Then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you, Blake. Did you all notice that um, our readings had a lot of Trinity emphasis on it? So, for example, in Isaiah 6, there was this idea of, of holy, 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 this tr- threefold praising of God. And uh, I'm going to move this one here. And then the classic John chapter 3, we have Jesus talking to Nicodemus, being, talking about being born again of the Spirit, and God the Father loving the whole world so much that he gave his Son and so our passages for today, including our one, uh, the one for the sermon, which is from Romans 8, really do emphasize that there is a trinity, that we believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and that these three, though one, work together and have unique uh, giftings and unique purposes in the world and unique manifestations. And uh, it is a mystery that only children fully comprehend. So we'll leave it at that. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna understand it. I believe when I get into the presence of the Lord, I probably may not still understand it, and I, but I'll just be okay with it because I'll be in the presence of the Lord, saying, "Holy, holy, holy, one for each Father, Son, and Holy Spirit," and that will be good. Well, let's take a look at Romans eight. Uh, take a look at Romans eight, and that's. Um, See, you can find that, you can read it in your bulletin, page 1118, 1118 in your Sanctuary Bible, Romans 8. And uh, I want to present to you that Romans 8 gives us something like a spectrum of time. We understand this idea, this linear spectrum of time, where on, I guess I'll do it this way so you guys can see it. This is your left, my right. This is the past. It's behind us, it's happened, something is already accomplished. Here we are in the middle, in the present, in the current moment right now. And off into the horizon over here is the future. Something that hasn't happened yet, but something that we look forward to with either excitement or dread. And, but it's there. It's going to happen. Uh, it's, some of it's unknown, some of it's known, some of it's undetermined yet because we don't see it. And, and what our actions are now may change the outcome of it. But Romans 8 is going to give us this spectrum of time, but it's going to talk about our past in terms of our sin and our disobedience to God, our inability to keep God's law and do the things which God demands. Paul also talks, when we're looking here, about the past containing the work of Jesus Christ, which was true for Paul. Paul was writing after Jesus went to the cross and died for the world's sin the way God said he would. And so this is an accomplished thing in the past. The sacrifice of Christ is a done deal. It is when Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, it was done. It happened in one moment of time, it's done, it's finished, it's in the past, and yet it informs our present and our future. Paul also talks about our future in this passage in terms of this wonderful expectation of what is going to be happening. And what he says is this. He says, there's a glory waiting for us, waiting to be revealed in us, that is so much greater than the sufferings that we're enduring right now. And so uh, this is really good news. And this, I think, is not just in our present lifetime, like later on in this lifetime, still in the future, what you will be alive and awake for. There's this future glory to be revealed. What it looks like, I don't know, but I'm excited about it. And yet also, beyond the grave, beyond our own death, is this future glory that is yet to be revealed, that is amazing, that will make our, our current sufferings seem inconsequential in comparison to. And uh, that's a comfort to me, that beyond this life is a future glory. I've been thinking about my mother a lot this week. I've been thinking about how she's gone on to glory last August. And uh, one of her dearest friends, we just found out, passed away on Monday. And uh, very much our families, this woman was the oldest living person in America with cystic fibrosis. She, she was in her 70s. It's amazing. Most people with CF don't live that long. And um, she was almost my godmother, but she was so sick and she didn't think that she was going to live that she turned down the offer to be my godmother. And so they, they picked another family uh, to be my godparents. But she could have easily have been my godmother, and in many ways she was my godmother. Connie Loman, she passed away on Monday night. And in my mind, with her passing and my mom's passing, it's this generation of people that I've looked up to as parents and godparents that have 
have now left. But even in an email that we got from her daughter, there was this sense of hope. This future glory is now arriving. Even though my mother has passed away, her mother has passed away, there's this future hope that we live in, and it's a great comfort in, in times of sadness when we think about these things. But we now are in the present. Uh, anyone who's not in the present should get up and leave right now, okay? If you're not in the present, I don't know where you are. You should actually just magically disappear, because if you're not in the present, then you're clearly not here right now. You're in the present, and so Paul also addresses the present when, he read, when we read Romans 8. And so what I want you to do is listen for the word now, N-O-W, wherever the word now appears, then you know Paul is talking about the present moment, what's happening now. And Paul's idea is that we're freed from the past because uh, of what Christ has done, and we're at peace about the future. It's not something we need to worry about. It's just good news. And that leaves us totally free to be led by the Spirit in the present now, in the moment that we're in. And I say this because I think sometimes people feel stuck between the past and the future, and they're in the middle and they don't think they have anything to do except for mourn for the past and wait with trembling for the future, and they're paralyzed in the moment. This is the exact opposite of what God wants for us. This is the exact opposite of what Paul is asking us to experience in Romans 8. And so today I want us to read about how we are unstuck, what I say unstuck in this moment of time, and how the present time is full of life and opportunity and vitality when we're led by the Spirit. So that's the introduction. Let's go to our reading. And I'm going to read more than it says. I'm going to read a good, a good chunk of Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is... What well, comes before the no? Now. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if, any <clears throat> and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. In you. Notice, keep noticing how many present tense verbs are going on here with Paul. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, 
you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Speaking of glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love Romans 8. I love Romans, Romans, all of Romans. Romans 8 is great. This is good news. Did you get that sense of time? In the past, it's over, it's dealt with. The future has some glory waiting for it. But in this present time, we slough off the bondage of fear and we live the full life that the Spirit gives us when we're led by the Spirit. And I think one of the problems that we have uh, when we encounter this sort of what I call the spectrum of time is that we tend to get stuck right in the moment when God wants us to actually be moving. We get stuck in, in all sorts of weird things and all sorts of things that we, we can't quite get ourselves unstuck from. I, I guess it, it takes God to get us Unstuck. And let me tell you what I mean by getting stuck, and I'm going to give us some scriptural examples of getting stuck. But getting stuck is when you can't act or when you can't move, right? It means you're, you're immobilized by something. And so, for a simple example, on a physical level, you can get stuck by a flat tire. You shouldn't drive when you're, you could probably keep moving, but you're not supposed to. You'll ruin your rims, you know, don't do that. You could get snuck, stuck in a snowbank if you've ever had that happen. Bless you if you've lived in California all your life and you've never been stuck in a snowbank. But I've been stuck in snow in Minnesota, and it's not fun. You've got to wait. You've got to dig. You've got to find somebody with a rope to pull you out. Uh, so there's physical stuckness. There's emotional stuckness. And I think this is pretty common, too. That's where you can't act or make a decision or you're constantly relying, relying on what other people do or say to know what to do or say yourself. You're emotionally Stuck. That's when you sometimes could give someone what I call free rent in your brain, where you go over and over and over something 
that somebody else said or did and you can't get it out of your head and you can't sleep and you can't rest and you don't have peace. That's stuck. You know, God doesn't want us to be in that place. We sure don't want to be in that place too. We can get spiritually stuck too. And that could be by our sin. We're held back by our sin. It's always trying to pull us back. It's sort of grabbing onto us with its sticky fingers trying to pull us back to some place where we don't want to be. Or we're immobilized by fear. And this is the kind of fear that Paul is talking about here. We know that we're sinners. We know that God's law is righteous and holy and just and that it condemns our sin. And we're so terrified by that that we're stuck just contemplating that sin all the time and we don't have the life that, that the, the work of Christ on the cross actually calls us into because we can't even forgive ourselves and we can't uh, accept what God has done for us. And I think fear is one of the biggest parts of this. Fear is a big component in a lot of getting stuck, both emotionally and spiritually. Um, if you remember, a couple months ago I gave us a, a health check and it was about the amygdala. Remember that part of your brain? Sometimes it's called your reptilian brain. It's the lowest level of your brain. It's a very powerful part of your brain. It has the ability to tell the whole rest of your brain to stop what it's doing. And it, will, and it, it can call all the shots. And it's, it's that part of you that does fight or flight. So it's a very powerful thing. If it, if you, if it sees a car coming towards you and you're in the crosswalk and the car's not slowing down, the amygdala takes over almost instantly and gets you out of the way of that car. Whereas your frontal lobe may go, oh, I, you know, I wonder who's driving that car. And I wonder, uh, that color of that car is really pretty. I, I, I should get a color car. That all gets shut down instantly by the amygdala. Whether it's the blood flow stops or whatever, I don't know. Neurologically, the amygdala takes over and it says, run! Run! And that's all you can do. And, and it helps you. It makes you stay alive. It's great. God, praise the Lord for our amygdala. It operates out of fear and it says, Fight! Stay where I am and fight and hold my ground? Or it says flight. It says run like heck and get out of there. But those are really the only two choices. It's not very creative. It's good at making life-saving decisions, but it doesn't do other things very well at, at all. And here's the thing. Is if we're always fearful, if we're slaves of fear, say, that part of our brain will always be active. It will always be seeking protection and safety, and it will cut off the higher functions like creativity and planning and a sense of beauty and play and playfulness. It can't do those things. Uh, so it's going to react in fear and it's going to be a slave to fear. It's going to be stuck. And so fear can keep us stuck. Keep, fear can keep us from experiencing the life that Romans 8 is calling us to. So I want to give you some examples. The scripture is great. What I love about the scripture is it speaks to life in ways that most ancient literature just doesn't. So for in Sunday school this morning, or Bible study this morning, we were talking about 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, and next week we'll look at chapter 19, and I invite you to come to adult Sunday school. It's really an interesting time. It's really interesting stuff. But this, this idea that those three chapters alone speak so much to the human condition in such a poignant way, and it's about Elijah, it's about Elijah and his contest with the prophets of Baal. It's about his own, what looks like, depression and his own burnout because he's been faithful to God and yet he's been through the ringer because people are seeking his life. It's really poignant. It, the, the scriptures are true to life, and that's what's so beautiful about them. But I want to give you an example of, of what it looks like to get stuck. In 1 Kings chapter 17, 
God tells Elijah to announce a drought to the whole country. This is the sort of thing that makes the prophets of God really uncomfortable or unpopular, right? Nobody, nobody loves the messenger that comes to say, by the way, there's going to be a drought, you know. And if you're really hungry, you're going to get hungrier, all right? So he announces that there's a, a drought from God. And then three years into that drought, the people of God are really tempted to start worshiping a different god, a god named Baal, or sometimes we call him Baal. Baal is a god, is a Mesopotamian god or a Canaanite god of um, fertility. He's the one that brings the rain. He's the one that brings the crops. He's the one that brings new animals into the flock. So, of course, they're going to be tempted to pray to this god because this other god, he's not offering us anything but a drought. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather pray to this god, the vending machine god, as Jack put. Thank you. That was good in Sunday school. The vending machine god who's going to, if we worship him, offer to him, uh, sacrifice to him, he's going to give us what we want. Crops, water, rain, all that stuff. And so Elijah says we have to have a bake-off, basically, a baking contest here between Baal and the Lord, Yahweh. And who's going to win? You know, and we know this story. This is a great story from childhood, right? The, the part where he takes 450 prophets of Baal to the wadi afterwards and slaughters them all, we don't tell the children that part as much. But it's this, this story of how they build an altar and they, they put, you know, the prophets of Baal, Baal, cannot get it to catch on fire at all. But of course, when Elijah, all he has to do is douse it with even extra water to make it fireproof. And yet, then he prays and the Lord comes down with his fire and consumes everything. It's just all, it's all vaporized in a moment. This is what Elijah says to the people of Israel. He says, how much longer will you limp along between two options? If the Lord is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. But pick one. You guys are stuck between two gods, and you're not, gonna, you're not right now committing to either of them. You need to pick one. You need to stop limping along. And that word limp is, has a lot of meanings. It could mean actually dancing around the altar, but it could mean like dancing around like, oh, here, I believe this thing, and I'm going to dance over here, and I believe this thing. It means to mentally vacillate or to think in an unstable manner, bouncing between commitment of two persons or ideas. That's the stuckness that God is confronting in the world. Which are you going to choose? You're going to choose me, or you're going to choose some other God. You're going to choose the God who brings drought, or you're going to bring, choose the God who will promise, though they'll not deliver, to give you these other things. Here's another example of getting stuck. If you might want to read these, for example, just so you, if you want to take notes, if you want to go home and read First Kings 17 and 18, you'll you'll find that story there. This other you'll find from Matthew 25, and we return to this parable quite often. It's the parable of the talents. The master goes away, he's got three servants, one he gives ten talents, one he gives five talents, one he gives one talent. He says, I'm going to come back someday. Invest this money, make it grow, and when I come back, I'm going to ask for an accounting of everything that happens, right? There was the one that got, had ten, made ten more. The one that had five, made five more. We know the story. And the one that had one, it says, he was motivated by... Fear. He said, I was afraid of you. I was afraid of what you would do if I lost this. 
And so I buried it in the ground. And the master was angry. He came back. He said, you could have at least taken it to the bank and gotten 0.025% interest in this current economy. That'd still be something. When I got back, I would have had a talent plus 0.025% times every year I've been gone, whichever that is. He didn't even do that. In fact, with inflation, my investment has shrunk. You know, you could say that. It really has shrunk. I can understand being paralyzed by investment decisions. You know, if you ever, if you ever have a financial advisor and they're like, well, you should put it in this or that, and you're like, what will happen? And they're like, well, it may, it may get vaporized. <laughs> but you don't want to put it in something that just, you know, it's tough. It's hard to know what to do with your money, right? It can, it can paralyze you. These guys were told by the master, go invest it. They didn't really have a choice. This guy was actually disobedient to his master. He didn't actually invest it. He just buried it. And um, there's one thing I haven't considered until now. And what was the servant experiencing while he was waiting for the master to return? You think about that? I know this is just a parable, and you can push parables a little too far, but just think about it. The first two servants were busy. They were investing. They were managing these investments. They were looking at their returns. They were, they were going around doing all this stuff. That kept them plenty busy until the master came back. And I, I dare say they probably were enjoying themselves as they saw it grow. They were thinking, this is great. They, they caught on to the energy of it. And they said, I'm so excited to be able to report what's going to happen uh, when he comes back. But the last one, who had just buried it, what was he experiencing while the master was gone? Whatever fear he started with, I can think that was the only thing that actually multiplied in his investment. His fear probably only grew and grew and grew. And he sat around all day going, oh, I, you know, I hope. He probably was actually hoping for the others to fail drastically so it would look like he came out on top or something, you know. Just think what it's like to be that stuck servant saying, oh, I don't, want, I don't want to take any chances, and, and I have all this free time on my hands, so I'm going to mull over the master's return. I imagine when the master returned, it was just such a relief to him. Like, finally, I can confess to you that I didn't really invest this at all. And then we know what happened. We'll talk about in a little bit what happens when the master returns for him. Um, what's surprising to me is he lived long enough to see the master return. That kind of worry would probably just kill you if you think about it. One last example from Scripture. So that's from Matthew 25, if you want to read that later. But Exodus 17, and many other parts of Exodus, is about the people of God leaving Egypt, as we know. And they had just seen God's mighty hand. They had been rescued from all sorts of things. They had crossed the, the Red Sea. They'd seen God destroy their enemies. But they were hungry, and they were fearing death, and they were fearing the loss of all their cattle and all that sort of thing. And it made them grumble against Moses and against the Lord. And the word there actually is to murmur. There's this quiet rumble going through the crowd. Uh, even the way it started was kind of this sort of passive-aggressive thing. Like it was out of Moses' earshot for a while. But then the crescendo grew until finally they said to Moses, You've taken, the Lord has taken us out here into the wilderness to die. And, and which is just crazy, you know, because Moses is like, he just saved you. Why would he bring you all the way out here just to kill you? He could have killed you much more easily way back there. Or he could have just left you there. That's not logical. Don't think that way. Um, but they, they were stuck because they wanted to go back. They, but they, they couldn't go back. So they were truly stuck physically, but they were stuck 
spiritually, they were stuck emotionally. They were longing for something that they couldn't have anymore. They were attached to their past in a way that no longer made any sense at all. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting how the scriptures describe the human situation so much as being stuck? Whether it's stuck out of fear, stuck out of circumstances, stuck between two options that we can't commit to because we don't want to, we're afraid, we're holding out for our best options. This is actually the human condition, is to be stuck. Stuck. Romans 8 is telling us that we can't be stuck in this moment of time between the past and the future, but we need to be unstuck. Unstuck in a moment of time. And that's what Paul says. He says, God has acted in the past. He's brought the people out of Egypt. He's done all these amazing things. He's worked through Christ to free us from sin and death and the devil and all that goes with it. And there's all this stuff has happened in the past. And God will continue to act and he will act in the future. And this future glory will be revealed in us that makes our present sufferings look like nothing. So he says, the past is taken care of. The future is taken care of. All that's left for you right now is the present. And in the present, you're in a divine moment where all life opens up to us because the Holy Spirit wants to be at work in our lives and guide us. So that's where we are. We don't want to get stuck. I don't want to get stuck. Some people do want to get stuck. Have you noticed that? Some people are more likely to get stuck. Some people are more comfortable being stuck because they... They want to limp along through life. They don't want to commit to anything. Whether it's some sickness in them that keeps them from experiencing all that life has, they're incapable of living in the present with the hope of a bright future. They just can't do it. And what I found is generally they're really good at trying to get you stuck with them too. Uh, and so for what it's worth, if you see that happening, resist getting stuck, whatever that looks like. I can't say for you what that would look like. But nobody has the right to get you stuck in their stuckness. You have every right to yourself of saying, I sympathize with you, I really care about you, uh, but you're going to have to be responsible for yourself and you're going to have to make your own decisions. And my life, my future, my hope, my happiness, my everything can't depend on you getting stuck or unstuck. Um, and so for people who have an addictive member of their family, it's a matter of saying, your illness is not going to define what my life looks like. I'm going to love you, I'm going to support you, I'm going to care for you, but all your choices are your own. And actually, that's the only way to help somebody else who's stuck get unstuck, is by not getting stuck with them. A little bit of psychology here. Take it or leave it, really. It's not necessarily scriptural. But stuckness is this feature of human nature. I'm going to tell you something. Um, I've changed my ways a lot in the past year. I, I tended to be someone who got stuck in other people's problems more often than not. That's just how I was wired. I don't know why. I could probably find out why. I could delve a little bit, and I may, and I may do that. But the reality is, if somebody was stuck, I felt like I had this need to enter into their problems and to help them work it through. And, to, and I still want to do that on some level. I want to be helpful to them. But what I'm finding more and more is that the best way to help them is to make them responsible for their own behavior in their own life. And so praise the Lord, and I can only say that the Lord has helped me with this. I give credit to God for this. I'm getting stuck a lot less than I used to. And I'm more open now to the life that God has for me in the present, being unstuck in this moment of time. And I don't want to live by fear. 
Sometimes that's what that stuckness is about, fear of making a mistake, fear of doing something wrong, uh, fear of moving forward and taking a risk because it's difficult. Uh, I'm refusing to let fear be my master. I'm refusing to be a slave of fear, as the scripture talks about. Christ, and here's the thing, Christ dying on the cross was too expensive for God. I'm going to say this again. When Christ died on the cross, John 3, we saw God so loved the world, he sent his son into the world to save the world. Christ dying on the cross was too expensive for God for me to stay stuck in this life. That's not what God asked me to be. That's not the freedom that Christ paid for dearly with his own blood. He didn't die on the cross so that I could go, I'm stuck. He died on the cross so that I could have life, so that I could live into the present moment the way I am now. There's too much joy and there's too many blessings to be had living unstuck in this moment of time that God has ordained. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, of, of that. Right now, my two oldest children love to sit in my lap. And my uh, Kaya, the middle one, loves to, especially since I got a haircut, she loves to rub the back of my head and go, oh, that's soft and kind of scratchy and it's just very sweet. And they love to give me hugs and kisses at bedtime. Are we having problems here? How's that? How's that? Okay. They love to give hugs and kisses at bedtime. And um, honestly, I can count the days, not on my hands, but hundreds, maybe thousands, but not that many. I can count the days when that won't happen anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you have older kids, you probably know what I'm talking about. Someday your kids will stop kissing you all the time, every day. Someday your kids will stop sitting in your lap every day. And I maybe only have a thousand, I have a countable number of days left with my kids acting this way. Now, when they're done acting this way, they'll do something else wonderful that I will love. But this thing that's happening now is not going to last forever. And I'm not going to spend one minute of that time with my kids acting that way, thinking about something else, stuck on something else, giving something else or someone else free rent in my mind. I'm not going to do it. It's too precious to me. It's too precious to me, this moment that I've been given. So I'm not going to do it. I don't have time to be stuck in fear. I don't have time for dysfunctional relationships. I don't have time to give anyone free rent in my head. What I have found over and over and over again is that when I sacrifice, when I'm led by the Spirit, when I do what the Spirit nudges me to, or when I do what the Spirit yells at me to do, have you noticed sometimes the Spirit nudges and sometimes the Spirit just says, do, do it. I lose all fear in those moments, and I live life to the fullest. I don't count the cost. Every moment is as full as a universe in that time. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you're led by the Spirit, when you're doing what the Spirit asks, time almost stands still. The question is, what does God do? What does God do with our stuckness? He knows that it's there. You know what he does? He answers our stuckness with definitive action on his part. Look at what he does with Elijah. He sends fire to settle the dispute, to help the people of Israel out of their limping ways and says, who's God? God, the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Now you know who to follow. Let's take those 450 prophets of Baal down to the creek and slaughter them all. That's action, right? I mean, it's kind of bloody, but that's action, right? And that's what they do. And then they go on, and God begins to redeem everything. And then he sends the rain. Right after that, God sends the rain into his world. 
and the drought is over. Think about the, the, the parable of the talents, and this one's a more sobering one. The, the master comes back and he judges his servants, the one who made, had ten and got ten more, well done. The one who had five and got five more, well done. The one who got one and buried it, he says, take that one and give it to the one who had ten. Because we're going to give what, even what little he had is going to be taken away, and we're going to give it to the one who's been faithful. Ouch, that's frightening. Think about the exodus. God's people are murmuring, you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. That irritates God, but yet he leads his people to a miraculous stream of water and sustains them until they reach Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he initiates this life-giving covenant of the law with them, designed to give them a hope and a future, and he's with them. That's the main message of Exodus, in fact, that God is with his people through their wanderings along the way, um, in judgment, in fire, in water, in law, in guidance, in provision and protection. God is with his people. God acts into their stuckness by being with them and providing for them. So Romans 8 tells us that we don't need to be stuck anymore. In verse 15, I want you to look at it right now. Verse 15, it says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. In all the scripture, it's rare to find slavery to fear as being a form of slavery. There's other kinds of slavery. Slavery to other people, slavery to the sin, to the flesh, slavery to the law, slavery to, to slave masters, slavery to the spirit even, which is a good thing. But here there's a description that you did not receive a spirit to make you a slave again to fear, and I would say stuckness. But you received a spirit of sonship and adoption, and by that spirit we cry, Abba, Papa, Father, Daddy. The fear that Paul talks about is fear that we failed to live up to God's life-giving law and that we'll be judged by that law and found wanting, or that our return on the talents will be small, or that we've limped along between two masters, or that we've murmured against the great gifts that God has given us and the great signs of power he has shown us. That's the fear he's talking about. No need for that fear, because we're led by the Spirit. We don't need to live in that fear. So we don't need to be afraid, and we don't need to be stuck. We are unstuck in a moment of time. Between our past that's redeemed and our future that's glorified, we are set free from slavery to fear and can now live a life that's the true life. With the law as a life-giving guidance and not a crushing weight on our shoulders, and choosing to be led by the Spirit when we get stuck again, not complaining about our circumstances, because we will get stuck again. But the Spirit will continue to guide us and lead us out of that place and lead us out of Egypt, even though we long for it again, and the Spirit will be with us. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 30:19. This is what uh, is said to the people of Israel, and it's about making a choice. It's about not being stuck. It's about not being undecided or limping along. This is what it says, Deuteronomy 30, 19. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers. So like I said, I'm done getting stuck. I hope you are too. I'm done getting stuck. I want to enjoy each hug and cuddle from my kids. And when those change to enjoy, 
whatever comes next. I want to serve God in this church, moving forward with the risks and the challenges that God has set before us. In our time here that I've been with you, we've spent some time getting over some bad habits, some old behaviors, and we don't have time for any of those anymore. I want to tell you that our Abide, Discern, Implement team is getting ready to present a plan for our church to follow. And it may be a radical, radical plan. It may be something new. It may ask you to stretch and get out of our comfort zone. But I want you to be assured and know that it's a spirit-led work. It's already been present. We've already had some great conversations. So that's what Romans 8 is telling us today. Be spirit-led. Follow his lead. Choose life. Don't limp along. Risk for God. Count on him to redeem the past and secure the future. Live all you can now in the moments he's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for unstucking us, unsticking us right now in this moment. Help us to live into the future that you have for us here in this place. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.